APL is an array-based programming language developed by Kenneth Iverson in the 1960s and later with Roger Huey. Its central data type is the multidimensional array, and hence it's very useful for workloads involving a lot of matrix math. APL uses symbols predominantly, and it leverages consistent composability and execution rules to enable it as a notation, as a tool for thought. Mm, I think it could actually be beneficial in unlocking new ways of thinking about your problem in a way that will help you solve the problem better. If you draw an analogy to another domain, which has its own specialized notation, like music, for example, um, the notation allows you to very quickly get a understanding of what's going on. Hi, this is Will. I'm a YC alum and independent researcher who has worked across e-commerce, cryptocurrency, and financial industries. And I'm Sri. I'm a YC alum and a research engineer focused on natural language processing for search. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. We're two guys discussing edge, fringe, or overlooked technologies over a couple of drinks. Our show has four segments. First, we give a high-level outline of what the technology is. Second, we talk about what it can do today. Then third, we let our imagination and optimism take over and see how the world would change if the technology was readily adopted and everywhere. And lastly, if we believe in this future, how can we take a position on it? We can't be experts in everything we cover, so if you got insights on this topic, let us know in the comments down below. And be sure to check out our audio versions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can go about your day as you listen. But first, in the spirit of shooting the bull over a couple of drinks, what are we drinking today, Shri? <laughs> so we are, at least I am, drinking uh, tea, Bengal spice, uh, <laughs> herbal tea. I realized in previous episodes uh, that I was running out of hipster drinks at the uh, corner store, and I realized that there is a whole other world of beverages in tea, so you'll probably see me drinking some more tea. What flavor is Bengal spice? Does it? I assume um, it doesn't have tiger in it. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, cinnamon and uh, cardamom and stuff like that. <laughs> I see. I wonder how they decided. Uh, well, so for me, I got Trader Joe's Winter Wasail Punch. And I don't know, like this is a festive beverage blend of apple, cherry, black currant, and lemon juices from concentrate infused with holiday spices and orange peel. Sounds terrible, but I forgot to make a run this week. So I, I guess you <laughs> reap what you sow, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Cool. So what are we talking about this week? Uh, so this week we are going to be talking about APL and uh, some of its descendants, uh, J and K, but we'll probably mostly focus on APL. Have you heard about APL before? Uh, I only know that it is a programming language that uses a lot of weird symbols, but uh, yeah, tell us more about it. (laughs) Just like the only thing we know about Lisp is that it's a lot of parentheses, right? (laughs) And so that's that's effectively it. And so APL is an array-based programming language developed by Kenneth Iverson in the 1960s and later with Roger Huey. Its central data type is the multidimensional array 
And hence, it's very useful for workloads involving a lot of matrix math. APL uses symbols uh, predominantly, and it leverages consistent composability and execution rules to enable it as a notation, as a tool for thought. And so um, it's one of those languages that most people would probably think about as an isolang, but in fact, uh, it's something that won Kenneth Iverson a Turing Award. And I guess this show will talk about like why, because like most people don't know it and they don't know its influences on tools that they may use today. Um, and we'll talk about like what makes it so special and why you would want to look into it today and some of the aspects of the language. So uh, are you excited? Were you excited when we said, hey, let's do some APL? <laughs> I think that I wanted to know more about it because it's something that comes up every now and then on Hacker News and Lobster. Mm -hmm. And you're right, yeah. it, it sort of brought up in the perspective of hey, this is a weird language. Or people say sometimes that they're going to solve advent of code or some such programming challenge using APL as a, uh, you know, just as a handicap, right? Yeah. That it's supposed to, yeah, it's supposed to be uh, like a really leverage. It's supposed to give you a lot of leverage, right? But I, but I yeah, guess yeah. like, uh, unlike other ESOlings, say like BrainFuck or something, it's not supposed to hinder you, right? So. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so I was surprised that this is a language that was both seriously used at some point for business applications. And like you said, it is very grounded in a particular style of um, thinking about computer science and about notation, which I thought, well, I had no idea. Because if you look at it from the surface, and we'll probably, let's just get it out of the way Mm -hmm. so that we don't dwell on it too much. Yeah. This looks like a bunch of gibberish. It looks like yeah. literally hieroglyphs. It looks like line noise, effectively. Like If you thought like other languages that you were unfamiliar with look like line noise, like APL, the only thing I knew about it in the beginning was it was a programming language that required you to buy a whole new keyboard because your yeah. like typical run-of-the-mill ASCII keyboard just wasn't going to cut it. And so I was like, that's weird. But I, I didn't know much else about it until, I guess, until we had to do... Uh, this episode, honestly. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think that's that's the first thing to get out of the way. And I think the notion of weird symbols really sets up a shallow gate to deter new users in the current mainstream culture of programming, much in the same way that people are put off from Lisp because they see that it's a whole bunch of parentheses. And it, that's really a shame because when I looked into it, I was like, oh, there's some really interesting ideas in here, especially about language itself. And it was once quoted by, God, who's the first Turing Award winner? That if a programming language doesn't change your mind about how you think about programming, then it's not worth learning at all. And APL definitely changes your mind about like how, how you think about programming. Because I think the the pitfall that we fall into if you only know mainstream programming languages is that you think you know what programming is. And in every era, 
like people thought they knew what programming was and they heartedly and handedly rejected what was the next thing that programming would look like i mean like assembly programmers like hated hated compiled languages right and it's the same thing when like interpreted languages came around and i'm sure someday like we'll call people that do prompt engineering uh programmers and (laughs) there's a similar sort of hate including from us right like because we joke that prompt engineering is the shortest of all careers but yeah and so we'll see, right? We'll see. But definitely, like, I think APL is rightfully so. It, it changes your mind of how uh, programming could have been. Because then you, when you see a lot of these different variations of what was tried in the past, um, you can take the good ideas from there. But you also recognize that, oh, a lot of the design choices we have in our programming language is completely arbitrary or they were bad decisions to begin with like uh the guy that invented the null he's just like that was my billion dollar mistake literally i've wasted like (laughs) billions of dollars of people's time in the world so yeah yeah that by the way that quote comes from alan perlis yes alan uh, perlis yes yeah it it really is a language which is mind bending because you know in the pregame we were both discussing that we had tried APL on this online tutorial called tryapl.org oh, which we'll which put, in, we'll the put in the show notes yeah yeah but and i recommend that people try it because it is just such a bizarre sensation i felt as an experienced programmer who dabbles in obscure technologies as a a matter of running this podcast to use that to go into that site and realize i have no idea what's going on like this thing is completely different a completely different way of thinking about how to write programs than anything that i've actually written um, for my job or anything like that and Mm -hmm. if you look at a lot of the links that are posted on hacker news a lot of it is blog posts where people say, oh, I used APL and it really changed how I write my programs for my day job. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, there's a certain way in which APL forces you to think, which I think could be characterized as data-oriented because the core operations of APL are taking in, like you said, multidimensional arrays of various types and then morphing them, changing their shapes or applying some operators into the cells of those arrays and and much more. But it's a very different way of thinking about uh, programming. There's a lot less emphasis on writing code. Your mind, at least for me, was much more focused on, okay, what data do I have and what is the next thing I want to do do with it and iteratively working your way towards a solution. Yeah, uh, for me, it once I was reading it, I did recognize a whole bunch of things that seemed slightly familiar, which was a little surprising to me. Like the the REPL in which you iteratively chain together computation reminded me of Lisp, where you kind of iteratively do that. Um, and it also reminded me of data pipelines and data transformations in which you do this sort of thing. 
And uh, because I've used MATLAB before, like MATLAB is also an array-based language. I, I used to have to use that at work. So in that sense, like... I'm sorry. Like, um, <laughs> we, I mean... <laughs> MATLAB is good at what it's good at, but with everything else, like I, I've seen terrible, terrible MATLAB code because MATLAB is primarily used by scientists and they yeah. are not programmers. In addition, with some amount of familiarity with functional programming, you start to see some of the same ideas in there. But I think what APL does is that it structures and puts it all together in a neat package that is consistent and therefore easier to learn. And uh, also it kind of fits together in what people would say elegantly because it's it's kind of like all the pieces fit together. Have you ever seen that uh, subreddit where it's, it's all things that like fit exactly into the space? <laughs> That, mm -hmm. that they're yeah, in yeah. It, it feels like that it's it's like oddly satisfying is is what it feels like so yeah. so so i think that that's that's kind of the feeling that i got when i was looking into apl interesting yeah i that is not surprising because it was designed with this in mind mm -hmm. uh maybe this is a good opportunity to go into uh the the inventor Kenneth Iverson wrote this paper called Notation as a Tool of Thought, which really lays out, I felt, in a very structured way, what what he was trying to achieve, and the design goals of uh, the APL language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say that um, also <laughs> as an interjection, the Notation as a Tool for Thought essay was I, I believe the very last thing he wrote on it so it's kind of a, a reflection of his work uh back then the very first one if you want to go back to the original manuscript it's called a programming language because that is what apl stands for surprisingly it stands for a programming language um wow and so i i think in the uh going back to the essay on the notation as a tool for thought um, that's a reflection of his work on APL and really what he was driving at. Because like when he invented uh, APL, it was written as a spec of the programming language without knowing whether it could be implemented in machines at all. And Alan Kay has said that that's to his um, benefit and one of the strengths of APL, because I think a lot of the languages that were invented previously always had an eye towards execution efficiency and therefore would be, I guess, used more because people wanted things to run fast. I mean, it's the same true today. But as a result, you have languages that take into account the complexities of the machines of yesteryear. And those kind of stick out like a sore thumb, whereas um, APL does not. And so it's just like the essay by Richard Sutton called The Bitter Lesson, which we can link to in the show notes that we mentioned in our previous episode on ChatGPT, which you should check out if you get a chance, um, that you should take compute, massive compute into account in the future, because that's effectively what 
Kevin Iverson did in the 1960s, that all invent a language, worry about the notation and how they compose together, and we'll have somebody else figure out how to like write it into an executable. And so that's that's one advantage there. But then on the flip side, I would argue that because of that, you know, people always try to get things that are usable practically. And so I think that's probably why our current modern world is run by C and its derivatives rather than Haskell and APL and its derivatives, right? And so Hmm. those things are only slowly clawing back the territory that they would have gotten um, otherwise, right? And so yeah. it's through podcasts like this where we discover things that were invented, like, what, what is this now, 50, 50, 60 years ago by now? So it looks like the contemporaries of APL, uh, if we say t- give or take five years, would be things like um, Assembler, Fortran, COBOL, Lisp, Basic, and I guess that that's about it. Yeah. So I, I think the the hmm. main at that time is probably dominated by Fortran and COBOL. Uh, I would say, and Lisp maybe, but but I think my impression was that Fortran and COBOL were the big ones. Maybe yeah. Algol. Yeah, Algol was around back then as well. So I would say Algol, Fortran, COBOL. So. Uh, in so then back to the essay on the notation as a tool for thought. Um, uh, he lays out like five major points as to what he means by that, and just to outline it here, it would just be the ease of expressing constructs arising in problems, uh, the ability to subordinate detail, uh, suggestivity, which means that like answers to one problem would give you hints about answers to another problem. Uh, economy, which he means by the terseness of the syntax, and amenability to formal proofs. And so we won't cover all those in details, but I think for the purpose of this podcast, it would be worth covering the first one, which is the ease of expressing constructs of rising in problems, and just kind of like how APL does that. And I think Mm -hmm. which is like what the feeling that you get that like things just kind of slot nicely into things. so I think the first thing is that APL is pretty consistent. I think for one, um, when you write compilers or even just like write a really simple math calculator, you have to take like operation order preference uh, precedence into account when you're evaluating expressions because math wants to, was it PEMDA, PEMNA that you PEMDAS. learned in like grade school? Yeah, PEMDAS. Yeah which is like parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, in, in that order, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that leads to some confusion, whereas APL says, does away with that and says, no, everything is evaluated from right to left, no exceptions. And so that makes it, it, makes it easier to parse what the APL programming line is doing. So I think that's one thing. Uh, Even though APL borrows a lot from math notations, like math itself has a lot of inconsistencies. Like for example, negation and factorial are on the opposite sides of their argument. Like I've never really thought about that much before, but I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. And then uh, 
exponentiation doesn't have a symbol, so you can't really like write it out as an operator. Like instead, mm-hmm. like the exponent is just raised and made smaller, right? And then uh, magnitude has two symbols, and then they're on both sides of like whatever the argument is. Um, and so APL does away with a lot of this and just says everything has to be either an inline uh, prefix or an infix single symbols. So factorial would be exclamation point B, and then raised to the power is A star B, and then magnitude, which is just bar B. So this matters a lot when you're trying to compose functions together if you have a consistent way of saying this is a function and these are its arguments, right? Um, And so I, I think that's one of the major things. And so besides this inconsistency, um, uh, another thing that APL does really well is that it doesn't matter if you're operating on one number or a lot of numbers. So for any of you that have tried to use uh, matrix multiplication uh, or implement it or use it in a library in languages that aren't array-based languages, you can tell that the programmers usually just kind of hard-coded it to like two-dimensional arrays and when you need something for three like all of a sudden it breaks or god forbid you need like four or five dimensional arrays like it just doesn't know how to handle that whereas apl uh handles that gracefully as well as any number of like array-based um programming languages or even like I guess the pandas packages should technically be able to handle those as well that are, is used in Python. And and then lastly, the terseness of APL comes from its thoughtful composition of functions and what they call operators. And the analogy that they draw is if numbers are nouns and functions are verbs then uh, what they call operators are adverbs and operators um, modify verbs and so operators modify functions but for those of us that come from functional programming operators are effectively higher order functions where they don't modify a function, but they can change where you're targeting that function if you're operating on a lot of numbers, like an array of numbers. Hmm. So for example, in a, in an array, you might have an array of 10 things. And a typical higher order function is, say, reduce. And reduce takes a function, which is which in this case we might call a verb. And then reduce is the adverb in which it says, take this function and apply to every element in the array. And then we're gonna accumulate the results of every one of those applications of the function into a single result. And so that would be an example of an operator. And so the typical ones we know about in functional programming are things like reduce, or I think they would call it fold. and Usually in Haskell, I think there's a left fold and a right fold. Uh, and then there's also map. And uh, APL also has these things, and they call it reduce and scan. Um, and so 
in order to do a summation of vectors, then you would just say uh, slash, which means reduce, and then put a plus. And so that's effectively like reduce with a summation fu function inside the reduce. And then the vector that comes after it is the argument. Um, and so that makes it really terse. So you can imagine like a symbol as an operator, like plus, plus is the verb, and then you modify it with a slash in front of it. And that hmm. that's all you need to do. Yeah. One other way that I've seen this idea being described, if you're not familiar with functional programming or Haskell or things like this, uh, if you're familiar with Python, Python has list comprehensions, which are basically a way to implement things like map, certainly, map and filter. Uh, and Python does have a reduce, but it's not available in list comprehensions. But basically, APL is like a whole language where every single function is doing list comprehension. And the whole language is built off of list comprehensions, except that if you try to do list comprehensions in Python, it's very verbose because every single time you have to say, you know, f of x for x and y, uh, whereas in APL, that's all implicit. And you just say uh, f of x, where x can be a, uh, something that has one value, a scalar, or it could be a, a list of things, a vector, or it mm -hmm. could even be a multidimensional array similar to how you might find in NumPy or Pandas or something like that. Right. Yeah. And so for those of you that know Python, we'll link to in the show notes a blog post called Why APL is a Language Worth Knowing, and you can check it out. And that, that would describe a lot of the mechanics here for you. Um, but yeah, and so I guess also to move on that, well, to also highlight what Sri is saying for like list comprehensions, that comes out of functional programming. Like Python borrowed it from functional programming. And so if you know functional programming, you can understand a lot of the concepts that APL tries to present. It's just that APL takes it further. Like instead of using loops, like functional programming is the traditional like lambda calculus functional programming does away with loops and says let's use recursion whereas apl says like let's do away with uh loops but we'll do kind of these functional operators and we'll make it terse and composable um and and that's that's kind of what you get and uh in the literature they have a term called tacit programming which is what we call point-free form in functional programming. And that has to do with curring, which we won't get into because it's not a podcast about curring. But if you want to look it, uh, look it up, um, and it's basically a way to define functions without being explicit about the arguments that it takes. How could that work? <laughs> we'll link to something in the show notes so you can uh, check it out. It's kind of neat. Um, and so I think there, these are kind of a, a smattering of basic ideas that we found in APL that gives it the ability to be very expressive and terse and what earns it as a language that can be a notation uh, as a tool for thought because you everything that we mentioned 
allows you to focus on mainly just data and like what you're doing with it. You don't have to like keep track of what loop you're on. You don't have to keep track of intermediate local variables that you have to throw away. You don't have to keep track of like, a, there's just not a lot of bookkeeping basically. And so that's the ideal where you get to focus on like I have some data and then I want to change it to this thing, right? It's like uh, data pipelines where you can write it all in one line. And so for people that like Bash, I guess, or Awk, then like APL should be, yeah, like APL maybe really missed out by not being the command line calculator for Linux or something. Wow, that would be really trippy. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I... I think that this really clicked for me when I watched a few videos of somebody live programming a, a demo application in APL mm -hmm. because the way that they narrate it is um, as a data pipeline where usually you have some input data and they say, well, okay, now I have this and I'm going to, uh, you know, whatever take the sum of this row and then now I have this and then now I'm going to apply this other operator and now I'll have this. And they just, they, mm -hmm. they do it in this kind of sequential way. Basically the way yeah. in which your mindset is, is you're just, you're focused on what do I have now and what's the next thing I need to do to it to get it into a shape that is close to, closer to my goal. And you do this by simply adding oftentimes a single symbol or a few symbols that will transform your data. You're not writing a lot of code. Your mind is mostly focused on what shape of data do I have? What shape of data do I want? What's the glyph that I need to add in order to get there? Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's uh, why people have such a good time with uh, APL. And if you search on Hackler News, of which like, I found a couple of testimonials from people that were uh, alive and, and using it back then. They they do say that it, it made them so productive and people remark that it must have been like flying a jet airplane back when everybody else was flying biplanes. Um, yeah, like people, there was a guy that used it in his uh, college course to solve, I guess it was the, what is it, the A-Queen problem? A queen's problem mm -hmm. and like he figured it out turned it in and then got a d because the professor didn't understand his solution and then he went <laughs> over the professor's head to the head of the department which was the guy that did like apl he got an a plus and so so but i mean that that goes to say that use apl uh with caution i guess uh or with some some hatred with ang in anger i guess is is the term but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you look on HN, you'll see many more testimonials uh, like that. I think the other thing, though, is that people often remark that APL is a write-only language because it just kind of looks like line noise. But I, I think I have some things to say that to that um, in some of the later sections. So we'll put a pin in that for the moment. But yeah, for now, hopefully as we're talking, you'll see the canonical example of the game in life in APL that uh, Shri mentioned where somebody is uh, using APL, like live coding APL, and you can see like why it's, it's interesting. Hopefully that piques your interest. And so 
now we kind of uh, gotten through like what is APL and like what what it can do. And uh, I think the thing that we do want to touch upon is that people do still use today uh, APL today. And if they don't use APL, they do use some of their derivatives like J and K. And especially K, I know K is used in the financial industry to make lots of money, which a lot of people don't know about, I guess. Um, hmm. But because I think it's not like a free open source software, as most of the programming languages are nowadays. And then real quick, I think J to, I wanted to say that J is a derivative of APL that was worked on by Iverson. And it was mainly because he wanted to have a version of APL that was freely available for anyone to use. And that he, in his words, can be printed on standard printers, meaning that like you can use it with regular ASCII keyboards. So if you're put off from learning APL just by the weird symbols that that are in it, know that Iverson did try to address this in his later part of his career where he had a derivative of APL called J. And one of the motivations was that it can be printed on standard printers, which in our day is translated to mean that you can use your regular keyboard on it. You don't have to buy a whole new keyboard on it. So um, that uh, that is probably good news. Um, and then I think the other thing that I wanted to say was that I was surprised that APL was invented for uh, teaching and, and writing programs. And eventually like Iverson got sucked into, I think a division at IBM. And as we know, IBM wanted to, hire people to improve their business processes. And I was surprised because most of the things that APL seems to be good at is for matrix multiplication. So you would think that it's more like Fortran for numeric computations, but that is not the case. But when I really thought about it, I think APL-like language should have been adopted in spreadsheets. And I guess that's also another thing that we'll get to later. Um, yeah. But overall, I think in the part where we talk about like where is this used today, that's that's my knowledge of where it's used today. Yeah, and also, just to make it clear, this is a real language. It is used in financial applications. It was used for business processes. And IBM, in fact, shipped a machine in which it, it shipped with an APL interpreter as and an APL keyboard. So like... This was not a joke language or a theoretical yeah. language or an ESO language. Like this was actually making people money in real life right. scenarios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And still today with K, so that's that's no joke. Probably more money than any other programming language has ever made. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I guess like moving on to what what this implies, I guess. Like, does APL have a future because like I, I guess this is we should have said at the top of our episode this is more like a retro episode because APL is what 60 years old and yeah. we're still talking about it today like why does it matter <laughs> you know I think it matters more than I thought going into it 
I think it matters in two ways, and and I'm sure we'll get into <laughs> to these. Really, like the surprising because you're like, then why did you pick it? Like, what was your what was your thinking? Because in our pregame, we're like, oh, do you want to do this? You're like, yeah, sure, <laughs> like let's do this one. So I, prejudice before, I, it wasn't a prejudice per se. I think that I thought it would be a really weird and obscure topic and okay. I, I that's those are some of the topics that that i enjoy and so i was like let's just pick it for that reason right and <laughs> and what i learned what i learned is that it's important in two ways one way that it's important is the effect that it already had and I, we've been alluding to this but if you if you use a lot of modern data processing libraries like pandas and and NumPy and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, the way that they work is very, very it, similar slash must be uh, inspired by APL. Uh, and, and I'm sure APL being as early as it was, like, was probably, a, uh, did set the precedent for uh, um, the way that those kind of libraries work, data manipulation libraries. And, and what I mean specifically is if you use NumPy and Pandas and whatnot, you typically don't write in loops and you think about applying functions in a vectorized way that operate maybe row wise or column wise over the entire uh, structure of your data, which is oftentimes Mm -hmm. uh, a table, right? And so I think that is how APL works. APL, I think, is even more powerful than the libraries that we have today, but it's very clear that it has a strong influence. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the type of operations that you can use on it um, very much borrow from APL, but I think it does lack APL's elegance um, in the because it, it takes the, fun, the the com- functional composition from the algo class of languages and then kind of layers it on top, which doesn't it kind of loses some of its elegance and com- composability that makes it work well when yeah. when you do that. And so that that was yeah. point number one. What was the second one? Yeah, I think point number two was more of taking inspiration from this idea that we could think about programming in a different way, which uses a terse notation and applying it to, I don't know, different domains, right? I think we you mentioned spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. You know, I also want to go into machine learning as well and uh, data pipelines yeah. basically there are a lot of different uh applications in which we're writing a lot of code and a lot of it is boiler boilerplate but yeah. they are basically just different ways of manipulating data and what the weird thing that i find is that it feels like there's a, an aversion among modern programmers against having to learn anything uh, like learn a new type of notation or, or, you know, think in a different way. Like there's I just like so much know. emphasis on developer ergonomics. And I'm like, well, maybe we're giving something up by not investing in learning a notation that can boost to our productivity. Yeah, I imagine that this is what Allocate laments because he's like, even today, like programming language literacy is like getting lower and lower. I, I guess you could draw the analogy that, yes, you want developer ergonomics, but to a point, right? 
you can't you can't have like an exercise program where you're like okay just take it easy right the, the whole point is to have you work your mind a little bit right <laughs> like yeah. you, you you can't like you can't you can't gain muscle if you're going to take it easy all the time like you have to do a little bit of work to gain that extra something so that you can think about your problem a little bit more different and so the willingness to pick up new types of notation or like a different way of thinking about programming that that's what you find that there's a resistance to right because it's like seemingly so weird or maybe like how is this going to help my career am i going to get paid more yeah. i'll if it's no then see ya i'm going to go kite surfing this weekend yeah exactly and i think beyond just like a, a it's good for you and it will help your mind or something like that. Mm, I think it yeah. could actually be beneficial in unlocking a new ways of thinking about your problem in a way that will help you solve the problem better. And if you draw an analogy to another domain, which has its own specialized notation, like music, for example, um, the notation allows you to just like parse very quickly a piece of music or in this case a program and then very quickly get a understanding of what's going on or at least that's the hope is that by well, it, condensing things into terse symbols assuming that you're an educated person who knows about those symbols you will very quickly be able to get the lay of the land or uh to quickly get be able to get the ideas out of your mind and into uh, into the notation. Yeah, and I think that's why like notation, the right notation is so powerful as a tool for thought, which I think is what Iverson was getting at. Like that, if you have something where you can just have the details of the problem that you're working on, it's it would be s small enough to fit on the page, and then you can start to see patterns in how you solve this one problem has a relation to how you solve something else, which is what he called suggestive, uh, which I mentioned earlier. Mm. But like, that's the sort of thing that kind of helps your thinking, right? Because like the, the reason why people say like writing helps your thinking is not just because it helps with the memory problem. Like imagine if you had to like memorize everything that you wanted to say, like you can't write it down. Right. And so like it doesn't just help with the memory, but like when you see your argument laid out on paper for some sort of essay, you start to see like a structure of some sort, right? And the structure that people teach you in high school is just kind of that introduction, three supporting arguments, and then repeat your <laughs> repeat your introduction. Like that's the basic of all like structures for an argument of something, but then there's others. And so as you write more, whether it's emails or something else, right? Like email has its own structure. Mm -hmm. Like there are people, I have friends that purport that there's people that write awesome work emails to the point where they're like, it's just so blindingly good, right? Like, huh. uh, or like intro emails uh, that, that those have their own structures, right? There's like little cultural things that like people do to make it easy to get other people to do stuff for them. Like these things all have structures to it. And, and in the same way, like when there's, uh, when the details are subsumed into the understanding of the notation, then that allows you to start to see structure of the problem at hand rather than all the details. And I guess that's kind of the holy grail of programming, right? 
And so, yeah. so I, I think that's what we're arguing for in like why this is important or like how it changes your thinking about programming and how it'll help you with the work at hand rather than something where it's like, we're not, our argument is not, oh, like learning Latin is going to help you appreciate the world more, which I mean is is cool in its own right, but that's not what we're saying here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So given that we're here, we're arguing that APL is good for helping you think about different problems. Like where else can we go from here? This is like a 60-year-old language and presumably we either mind it all for its ideas or there's still something left or maybe like something new has changed that gave it somewhere to go, right? And so I can think of like a couple things that might be interesting here. I think one is that um, APL is an array-based language and it can operate on matrices of numbers of high dimensions. And so one, I'm pretty sure like the current implementations of APL are really old and that they don't take into account the multi-cores that we have today. And so if you can write it in APL, it's very likely that it's easily parallelizable. But I'm pretty sure that current implementations don't actually leverage that to to exploit the multi-cores that we have today. And so it potentially could be a really interesting and perhaps profitable um, language for doing this sort of thing, which leads me to my second point, is that whoever was on the APL train in the mid-2010s should have been like waving their hands, writing a plug-in for Jupyter Notebooks saying, we can do ML, we can do ML too, right? Like, like this, this yeah. is right up our alley. Like, forget pandas, like use, use I don't know, whatever, J, right? <laughs> use J or like the APL yeah. derivative because like you can write it terse, it's fast, it's parallelizable. Like th- this is, I think, totally a missed opportunity. Yeah, so I think there there are a couple of fruitful things there. But basically to to pull back a little bit, the reason why APL could be relevant in different domains today is that like we mentioned at its core it's describing a data pipeline, right? Like the it literally the way that you read APL and the way that the uh operator precedence or there's no operator presence the way that it it's structured is that data flows basically from right to left right yeah. through the different operators you can think about it that way and there are a lot of different domains that are increasingly prevalent today which are data pipelines uh one is uh things like uh, apache spark or beam so people are using these right. uh, these libraries to process big data and the way that you structure a apache spark or beam um, program is that you specify a data pipeline and you say read this read this file and this file could be terabytes large and and do these operations on it apply this function reduce it etc cetera, etc cetera, fan it out in, yeah. in all mm-hmm. the, all these different ways and you let the runtime take care of the actual mechanics of reading the data, parceling it out into smaller chunks, sending mm-hmm. it to workers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if, like you said, 
if you had a modern version of APL in which you just write the pipeline declaratively and you mm-hmm. let the underlying runtime take care of actually doing all those other mechanics of it, whether you could process big data like very trivially, because the thing is that with like these these uh, other libraries, it's a you have to write all this boilerplate and whatever to set it all up. Like I wonder if you could just have a REPL that's like this big data REPL and you just write a few symbols and just get it done. I I think maybe yes. I do know there were attempts to do declarative data pipelines with things like SparkQL. Like they decided to uh, emulate the declarative language of SQL. Um, hmm. because like, yes, like it's the language of data queries. And so that seemed like a natural way to go, but I think definitely yeah. like APL or some APL like language may be a good fit for this sort of thing. Um, I think you really have to, I don't know, like it, it would have been an easier sell if there was like no other choice on the market at the moment and like everybody just had to learn APL as a result. It would be an interesting experiment, I, I think. Like is is an APL language more expressive than an SQL-like language in doing data pipelines? Maybe. It's, it's a very strong possibility for certain types of workloads, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, the other, the other thing which... I also uh, was fascinated about is applying APL to machine learning because mm-hmm. it's also a type of data pipeline. Uh, yeah. Like a lot of it is is just piping data through different operators. And especially with uh, neural networks, you're piping data through different layers of um, of a neural network, which is just math functions. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Kaparthi has a repo called MinGPT in which he demonstrates the core idea of GPT in like, what, 200 lines of Python? I bet somebody (laughs) could reduce that to like five or six lines of APL maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe not quite five or six, but certainly 20 uh, because I saw a great paper, we'll put it in the show notes, where somebody implemented a convolutional neural network in APL, and they did that in ten lines, and I think they could have they could have code golfed it to be shorter right, than that. They could have code golfed it, like, but this is like this is like with enough legroom in, in the APL airlines, right? So yeah, yeah, they were like, yeah, the, the, like that was a nice, like very readable APL program, as far as I could tell, mm-hmm. uh, because it was meant to be instructional, and. I don't know. I mean, people might not be necessarily familiar with convolutional neural networks, but they're not trivial because they involve this idea of running filters over, like iteratively yeah. over these like two two dimensional grids yeah. and, and whatnot. You have a two dimensional window that is uh, like being scanned across another two dimensional grid. So it like getting yeah. all the indices right can be problematic because you have to take into account the edge cases of when the window is at the edges of your image and stuff like that. And so that can bloat whatever code that you have to write. And uh, one of the good things about APL is that they have same defaults for some of these edge cases. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, and they benchmarked it also against uh modern frameworks like TensorFlow mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. 
apparently there's some version of APL that can be compiled ahead of time rather than purely interpreted, and it's competitive with something like TensorFlow. So I don't know. It's interesting. I'm not sure why somebody would prefer it other than maybe terseness, uh, but it seems like it's a good well, fit I, for the domain. I have an answer for that. I mean, like the... If you, I guess it goes back to suggestivity because, like, if you can spot the, if you have everything in a couple lines, presumably, like, you can, like, look at it, inspect it, run parts of it to understand it, but then you can see the overall pattern of solving this problem. And so you would be able to look at other problems and see, oh, can I take the same pattern over here and apply it over there? Because you can imagine, like, future programming languages including something like a neural network as part of their runtime library and so if you can modify that while it's running just to try out new models that would be pretty powerful too like normally you wouldn't do that but it's akin to like being able to um change the operator precedence of your language or change the way that functions are called or something like that like change the scheduler. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I see that. And yeah. And I think it could be good also just as a instructional tool because mm-hmm. if you read a lot of machine learning code, it, it's very hard to parse. It's very verbose and uh, common as things. As simple as they tried a, to make it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like like common things take a lot of characters. Like you have to be like, you know, torch dot multiply or torch dot mm-hmm. uh, whatever reshape and yep. whatnot. Like mm-hmm. like doing all these matrix manipulations. And mm-hmm. it'd be nice if you could just uh, focus more on uh, more on the data and less on the on the boilerplate and less on the framework. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, you know, in the case of like the min GPT and and uh, and those kind of instructional tools, it could be good at least for beginners to neural networks to learn how to implement the the core functionalities, the core modules that way. And then later on, okay, of course, you might use a production framework. Yeah, and also, I mean, I I think it's good marketing for APL. Like if somebody like is in charge of some sort of AP, like still there are APL companies today. Like if you want some marketing to come your way like just try it I'm, I'm sure you can code golf that into getting some attention on hacker news and lobsters yeah well well actually there are people who do this we'll put it in the show notes there's a, a good youtube playlist called learn apl with neural networks where somebody uses uh, apl to uh, solve mnist which is digit recognition and then there's another uh, another paper which implements CNNs using APL. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll put those in the show notes as well. Yeah, and also there is a podcast that only talks about array-based languages. So if you thought we were niche, <laughs> like go check those guys out. <laughs> I think it's called yeah. uh, Array ArrayPod or something. We'll, we'll link it to in the show notes, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think, well, what about some of the other, other things that... Um, you think you could take APL like in, in other directions? Yeah. I mean, we were talking before the show about applying APL concepts to 
more modern types of data. So in the modern world, we're typically not working with nested arrays of numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, our data today is much more like JSON is the the standard sort of lingua franca of like how data is interchanged today. And, and JSON is a notation which has uh, dictionaries with keys that map to some values and the values can be scalars, but they can also be arrays or dictionaries themselves. And so I don't know why I explained that. Most people, most modern programmers know how it works. (laughs) Captain Obvious, yes. (laughs) But basically, it's not that different than than what APL was optimized for, I think. Like, I think that if somebody was motivated, they could come up with an APL-like language that operates over this type of nested JSON data rather than the old style of arrays. Yeah, and I think you mentioned that also, and I was thinking, oh, isn't this JQ in spirit? Uh, Because it is like a command line, single line uh, JSON manipulation utility. But then I I think what you're saying is going one step further, because Iverson actually put out a spec of a consistent notation and composable, like, way to put functions together in order to manipulate multi-dimensional arrays uh, of numbers. And uh, by the way, as an aside, APL can also manipulate strings, but um, that's, that's, it don't, it's not just a numeric numeric computational sort of thing, but like a lot of the operations are about multidimensional arrays. And so I, I think what you're saying is let's have something like that, but for hierarchical data such as JSON because a lot of what we manipulate is not just arrays but oftentimes like trees and you know sometimes graphs and stuff like that and so mm-hmm. having that especially when the predominant text uh, data interchange on the web is JSON which is hierarchical that might be very useful because also a lot of the work for CRUD apps and a lot of the apps that you see today is just shuttling, like querying for some data from the database using SQL and then piping it into some sort of like JSON format and then parsing it on the other side into some sort of like object hierarchical thing mm-hmm. and then throwing into your hierarchical like component react like what whatever your dom thing is which is also hierarchical yeah and it just seems like a lot of wasted work when you like take a step back and look at it and so really it's kind of like why why are we doing that it's because we don't have a good story of doing this across the network and so i guess as i'm talking about it people have thought about like remote sql but like remote mm-hmm. apl like APL across a network or APL across like a distributed as a distributed data query that that might be not just interesting technically but it might be helpful to get like cut out all this boilerplate that we have to do yeah that that is interesting even if you don't think about it as applying it over some type of networked data structures there is a lot of boilerplate work of just like looping over some response from some API and then co-locating some other data together because they appear in the same React component and then sending that down the tree, like you said, 
And so we're just we're just parceling out data, reshaping it in different ways, you know, aggregating things differently. And yeah, it just feels like why don't we if this is the core 90% of what people are doing and then there's 10% that's actually interesting, why don't we condense that 90% into something really terse that just gets the job done, right? Like why does that need to be also 90% of the lines in our code base. Maybe we can just compress that. And I saw a really great talk about uh, data-oriented programming. Uh, We'll put it in the show notes, but Mm -hmm. this person was explaining that data-oriented programming is a view of programming that says the only purpose of code is to transform data. Like nobody actually cares about code. In fact, it's a liability. What you actually care about is you get your data from one place to another or in one shape to another. And so I I do feel like for most CRUD apps and most web applications today, that is the case. So I think we could have a APL-like language that lets us do that concisely. So then why not SQL? Like why? I know this is an episode about APL, so we harp on it. <laughs> all the time but like say to play devil's advocate like why not sql as a like a declarative language to just get stuff from the database here or i guess to to call out one of our previous episodes why not data log for that matter right yeah i mean i think those two are separate right there's Mm -hmm. how do you query data and maybe you would use sql or data log or whatever but okay, let's say that you use one of those tools and you get back, but let's say that you get a a, a JSON structure back. Yeah, what yeah. are you gonna do? Now you need to feed it into your React tree. And chances yeah. are your React component tree is not exactly the same shape as your JSON yeah. data, such that you can mm-hmm. just pass it straight through. You're typically you're doing some loops, you pick a few yeah. keys here, you pick a few keys here, you maybe you merge two RPC out. responses. Like the the user shouldn't be able to see this sort of data, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So then, yeah, I could buy that. Like that that would be something that would be better served uh, with an APL like language. Because even though like um, SQL has like filters, has like selector, like it's mostly about like querying for data. It's not actually about like transformations and so there are transformations that are implied in side of the declarative language of sql but like if you're thinking about things in steps of transformations then that that's that may be in a better argument for something like apl then yeah yeah and and i do also want to call out that probably the closest that i've seen to to what we're talking about for JSON structured data is things like underscore and lodash, which have quite a dizzying array of functional type operators, which Mm -hmm. operate on collections and arrays and whatnot. So it's there, but I think there is something to be said about uh, terseness as well. If you are a web programmer and you're just doing this day in, day out, maybe it's worth learning some notation uh, so that you can you can do this in a few symbols rather than constantly typing in typing out long function names, right? 
And so mm-hmm. I, I would agree that we need something for that. Um, are there other things? Because I was thinking that it's a really missed, I, I was saying earlier that it's a missed opportunity that spreadsheets themselves yeah. don't use an APL-like language because it just seems like such a great fit. Um, like the amount of space that you have for an Excel function is just one line typically. And Mm -hmm. they decided to use an algal like syntax, which is not exactly conducive. And so you should be able to use that for spreadsheets and, you know, Excel users aren't, typical mainstream programmers so they don't know any better so if they they're because they aren't going to resist right they're they're going to be like i guess this is just what you need to do to do functions in excel so they're willing to learn it i I think it's a missed opportunity yeah not only that uh they are also highly motivated there are people who are really really good at excel functions and yeah yeah they can uh, you know, whip up all kinds of crazy things that you would think that a spreadsheet program wouldn't be able to do. My point is that people are are managing to do things and, and willing to learn whatever weird formula yeah, language yeah, yeah, that yeah. Excel has. Exactly. So why not learn uh, APL? Yeah. Yeah, I would say it seems like a good fit. I, I wonder why it wasn't. Maybe my guess is just that whoever was on the Excel team probably just didn't know about APL is my guess. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, they looked at it and they're just like, nope. They just noped it out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was thinking another way in which you could combine APL and spreadsheets is that rather than having the cells in line with some kind of APL formulas, you could have uh, some type of environment in which you have the data in a grid in in mm-hmm. sort of a spreadsheet format. And then on the side, you have a REPL or something in which you manipulate it with APL commands and you can watch the data transform. And at the end of the day, then you would get not only your final data in the shape that you wanted, but then you also have a program on the side, which now you could apply to other other spreadsheets. Oh, that's kind of neat. I think you also mentioned that, like, instead of just the spreadsheet, like, what if you just had an entire immutable database, and then you could just up, use APL to apply step by step the data transformation that you want. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe a more more common case is like you let it ingest some sort of CSV, and then you apply APL to it, um, and yeah. then it spits out a CSV that you want, but. But then I think you mentioned that the KDB plus is something like that. Is, is that correct? I haven't looked into it, but like KDB is yeah. integrated inside the K language, which is itself a derivative of APL. Is that correct? Yeah, I looked into it very briefly. It seems like this is a real product. So like we mentioned, a lot of the APL implementations are commercially licensed products. Mm-hmm. And there's a company out there who is primarily targeting financial use cases, like we mentioned, and they're selling uh, KDB+, Plus, which is a the K language that has a um, 
columnar, uh, I don't know how to say that word. Yeah, but like column oriented database. Column, yeah, column oriented database. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, that is used for financial applications, primarily for time series applications. So people are probably using this to analyze stocks and and ha- have some trading algorithms and whatnot. So yeah, that, that's a thing uh-huh. that exists. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading something about K from Hacker News, but I can't find the resource to it, that you can implement like a simple text editor in K in just a couple lines of code. And so I was, at the time, I was surprised. I'm like, this looks like a line noise. And yeah, I I, I haven't revisited that. I, I think there, we'll put it in the show notes, but I think there is a tutorial for K where you know, the, the repo takes you step-by-step step through the different concepts of K. And so if you want to learn K, I mean, that that's also available. But you have to buy a license, I think. I think there are free versions for limited, but yeah, basically it's a commercial language, which is rare nowadays, right? But I guess they're able to do it because they sell to financial industries and, you know, what it, people are willing to pay for whatever they make makes them money. So that that's where they're at. Yeah. Actually, that was cited in Hacker News as also a limitation in that if you wanted to use it for anything that wasn't a very high ROI use case, uh-huh. it was why you know why would you pay sixteen hundred bucks to I don't punch right. some text? Uh, so th- that definitely hindered its adoption, and it seems to be a theme because. Uh, Small talk in our small talk episode, we talked yeah. a lot about how one of the reasons why it wasn't adopted very widely was that it, it was also a commercial programming environment. So it, there doesn't seem to be a very good track record of commercial programming languages really taking off. Yeah, and you have to remember that this is in the era in which people were trying to do this sort of thing. Whereas I think from the 90s onward, people are like, I guess we'll just release stuff open source and make our money upstream somewhere or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Or I guess for the programming language designer, it is I'll get hired at a big company that uses this, right? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so I think um, those are kind of some of the directions that I can see. Um, are there are there other ones? Because I think you mentioned a couple a couple other ones. Did you want to mention those? Yeah. So one argument that I saw being made for why APL could make a comeback, or at least the idea of having a language which has a terse notation, is that. Maybe in the future, people are going to be programming on mobile. Uh, and oh. and th- this has actually come to fruition in that there have been some, some companies lately who have released programming environments for, for mobile, which are primarily used by uh, young people, Gen Z, as they say, because well, they're also there's... mobile first. Right. But also there's that no code movement or low code, no code. And so people have been trying to figure out ways to program on a mobile phone. Also, it's it's probably pretty enabling because most people in the world have a mobile phone. Not everybody has a laptop, right? And so if it works or works well to the degree, like your TAM is potentially much, much larger. Yeah. And one of the, one of the, the, 
environments that has really seen some adoption uh, is released by this company called Replit. And the way that they solve the UX is that they have a specialized keyboard, like an in-app keyboard, which exposes Mm -hmm. common uh, keywords. So if and Uh, else and when whatnot. And so that way you're not having to type out very verbose types of code. But yeah, Uh maybe if you're willing to have a special keyboard, well, I have just a language for you. You're right. <laughs> right, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tweet. That's a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so, so maybe we could just have an APL keyboard on those things. Right. Right. Why not go all the way? Right. Because if you're willing to go there, right. If you're willing to smoke some weed, you should, might as well just go for a methamphetamines. Is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's another tweet. We yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting thought because I think one of the lamentations about the iPad is that it's consumer orientated and that, you know, it's not really a, it doesn't invoke a creator culture, but instead a consumer culture, especially in our young kids. And maybe it's because we have not figured out the interface for doing editing type of work. And maybe it just doesn't look like what it looks like on the laptop because the form factor is different. And honestly, I'm surprised. Like when I watch young kids playing Fortnite and I'm looking at the controls as, as like an adult, I'm like, there's no way I can play this game like this. But then like the young kids, they like warp their fingers so that they're touching like multiple keys at the same time. And they're playing just as well, if not better. Right. than I could on a keyboard. I'm like, well, you know, point taken. So maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it's doable. Maybe people are wrong that it's consumer devices. It's just that we have not done enough of the UI research into making these happen. Like there's no equivalent of a park for iPads nowadays, right? Like there's, there's no Mm. research lab doing like human computer interaction as far as I know for iPads and stuff like that. Yeah. It seems like the people who have the biggest problem with APL are experienced programmers because they're like, yeah, yeah, this exactly. thing doesn't look like the thing I know. But we just need I programmers you... our age to die off, honestly, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the only way things move forward <laughs> so that we aren't like at the top of the food chain telling people that this is the way that you should program. Yeah, and and... I, you know, going back to your assertion that, hey, if people don't know any better, they would be willing to learn this thing. Yeah, it does seem like if you just say, hey, this is how programming works, and especially if, if you're going to do it on mobile, you have to use these characters because it's just easier to, to input. I don't know if people are going to be up in arms and say, well, what the heck? Because they just, they don't know any alternative reality. And if it solves their problem and lets them do the thing that they want, they'll be willing to learn it. It's only people like us who don't want to learn new things. Well, and on the flip side, that's the exact same argument for a lot of the conventions that we have today because like we just kind of take it, like that's what we learned, right? People showed it to us and we're just like, I guess this is what programming is like. And so we just kind of go with it, right? 
Yeah, it's true. It's not like I was jumping for joy, being like, "Wow, this is uh, entirely intuitive," and I, I, I feel like I know it all in my heart. <laughs> yeah, I sucked it up and learned it too, right? Like, yeah, right. It, it almost wasn't any intuitive, like right? Because I was like, "Well, I guess it's hard because, like, if I if it's hard because like I am not working hard enough to learn it, or like I I'm just not getting it. It's not like this is like badly designed or something, right? But then, like right. now that you're more well-versed and like you and i have like surveyed the buffet of like what might have been like we're like oh there's a lot of these designs that are arbitrary like we just kind of yeah. picked it up and now they're everywhere like somebody designed it made the decision and through both like uh it, it's the sheer luck of distribution and sometimes just kind of uh piggybacking off of things like we have design decisions that don't best serve us that is now pervasive everywhere. I mean, like it's everywhere. Just like QWERTY keyboard is one, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the yeah. fact that like, even like things about like what, what the middle mouse bus button does. Like if you're on any other OS besides like windows and Mac, you're like, Oh, that's, that's a weird design choice, but like, it's just arbitrary. Yeah. 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 So yeah, we've internalized a lot of just arbitrary decisions and, if you go to people who have a f- fresh beginner's mind, as they say, mm-hmm. they may be more open to alternative uh, alternative ways of doing things. And that actually leads me to another potential use case, speaking of naive uh, intelligences, uh, uh, LLMs. Uh, mm, so yes. um, I think that a lot of people nowadays are interested in using large language models like mm-hmm. GPT-3 and ChatGPT. Check out our episode about that to learn more about mm-hmm. those. But people are interested in using those tools to generate code. Yeah. And it feels like people are using them to generate code that humans would write, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense because people are are typically interested in generating code that they can paste into some pre-existing code base, which was written by humans. But I'm curious to think about alternative languages for natively LLM generated code. Like if you are to start a completely from scratch code base and all the code, the entirety of the code is written by these language models and you as a human simply tell it what to do and then it generates that output. Why would it have to look like JavaScript, right? Because these things don't need human ergonomics. They Wait, can just but then output anything. Are th- is it meant to be executed by computers or is it meant to be read by humans as an output? Because then you could argue that why not just output machine code or assembly language? Yeah, that's true. Because a couple of reasons why... One reason is that these models have a limitation in terms of context size. Context size meaning that when you give oh, yeah. them an input, uh, mm-hmm. do this and that, sometimes they need to read the surrounding code in order to know yeah. the context yeah, yeah, of yeah. what the new code to generate. And that has a limitation in terms of the number of characters. Well, great. Yeah. APL takes like minimum number of characters possible to express oh, yeah, this. Thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like on the flip side, brainfuck is just right. It's just the complete opposite of what you would want an LLM to generate. Because, like, by the time it reached 
the what is it the 2048 token like all you've done is typed out l-e-l-l and then you can't even spell hello <laughs> with the number of tokens <laughs> that you used with, for brain fuck right whereas apl yeah. like you get a lot done in the fewest number of tokens yeah, I mean, in twenty lines, you have you know, uh, like a text editor itself, or one line, right? Or, yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, or yeah, chat yeah. GPT itself, or chat right? GPT itself, right? Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> right. you express transformers in like twenty lines. Uh, yeah, so so that's one advantage, and then I think uh, although in the future I'm sure context sizes will get larger, one vague idea that I have is that the expressivity of a single. Uh, single token or sequence of tokens is just very powerful, right? So it goes back to the subject suggestivity that Iverson was talking about, which is that mm -hmm. if you know, if you know a sequence or a pattern of APL uh, glyphs to apply in one context, you mm -hmm. see that in the ways in which you can apply it in other contexts. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. and these are how these language models also work because they read a lot of, text in their mm. training data and they they use that and they recompose it when you ask them for novel outputs. So mm -hmm. I wonder if the subjectivity part of APL allows the models to generalize uh, the code to novel situations better than they would a language which doesn't have that property of subjectivity. Yeah, I mean, the consistency of APL probably really helps with that too. So to give our listeners an example of what we're talking about with the subjectivity is that uh, APL has an operator called rho, and it looks like the Greek letter rho. And it basically just gives you the shape of whatever vector or multidimensional array that you give it. So if it's a three by two, it'll give you an array of three, two. If it's multidimensional, it'll just give you that. But then if you have the operator row, row, that gives you the rank because it effectively is the shape of the shape, which is what rank means. And so that's an, a pattern that can use across all sorts of problems to see the rank of whatever data that you have, which like they, they didn't reapply. There's not another symbol for rank. It's just the shape of a shape, right? And that's what rank is. And so that's that's the an example of, of uh, suggestivity that we're talking about here. Yeah, exactly. You can compose them in novel ways and still mm -hmm. get a coherent output means that maybe it allows these models to generalize better than I don't know, some other language in which you couldn't, it uh, doesn't have that consistency and it has to know a lot more about the specifics or the specific libraries or specific fu function calls in order to get something. Yeah. Like yeah, it would be interesting to try because right now with LLMs, we don't know its inherent limitations yet because like just a couple months ago with the image generation uh algorithms like doll e it was well known that it couldn't spell but it turns out that if you put in like character level data in it because so that it becomes character aware like spelling is actually no problem and so i wonder if mm -hmm. it's something similar with apl in that it's not able to gen generate solutions because it just doesn't have the memory buffer for the tokens uh and like it or it doesn't have the consistency 
of a language to help it generate these solutions. Because like even like mainstream programming languages, there are edge cases. Like it's not fully specified. Like most programming languages as rigid as they seem have edge cases in which they're completely unspecified. And people Mm -hmm. try to fully specify programming languages, but usually those are smaller toy examples. Like production mainstream languages are have so many edge cases that you don't really know about because you don't like unless you're writing quines, quins, or like some sort of like obfuscation thing, you probably wouldn't know about them. Yeah. 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 And actually another thing that comes to mind for why this could be a good language for LLMs is that one property of LLMs is that they can be prompted using this thing called chain of thought. Basically, Uh, what it means is that you uh, can structure your request in such a way that it makes a plan like where it says, oh, in order to solve this problem, I need to do this Mm -hmm. first and this next and this next, and then I'll get my answer. And hey, that kind of looks like a data pipeline. Right, and for each of those steps right. in that chain of thought, if it can map that to an APL uh, function, then maybe it can just solve the whole problem that way. Right, right, yeah. I mean, all the things that you're tweeting about this last week have kind of come together because, like, <laughs> now you get a coherent picture in 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 the podcast. So, I guess, dear yeah. listeners, if if you're more interested in st- this stuff, you should follow Shri at uh, Shridana. <laughs> And uh, he he'll he'll feed that you'll you'll get a live feed of of the stuff. Uh, you don't have to wait for the podcast, but maybe yeah, exactly. listen to it for the synthesis, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> I I think that that was an interesting thought when I, when I saw you talking about it, um, because the thinking was that oh okay, like the LLMs aren't sophisticated enough currently for you to give them a high level thing and for them to carry it all the way through you actually need to break it down for them you know i'll albeit not all the way down to the level of a programming language where you're like telling it which bits to put in which registers but um you know but break down the tasks such that it's able to kind of do things and guide it through uh, and perhaps with something like apl you're able to specify that at a higher level and then and then that would be the breakdown effectively right yeah and then it can it can just uh uh write basically convert that intent into Mm -hmm. apl uh, and solve the problem yeah Mm -hmm. yeah 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 that that's an interesting thought huh and then you do it on mobile (laughs) And then you do it on mobile. Uh, <laughs> actually, I was I was doing uh, in the prep work. I was using Chat GPT to try to explain APL code to me because oh, I was really? reading okay. the paper about convolutional neural networks, and I yeah. wasn't sure. They said, "Oh, this line implements convolution," and I was uh-huh. like, "How is that possible? It's like only <laughs> ten characters." And so yeah. I asked Chat GPT, "Explain this to me." Uh, it didn't do a good job. It actually, uh, its explanation for that line of code was entirely wrong. It said uh-huh. that it outputs an array of 
or a matrix of ones. That's uh-huh. clearly not what that line does. So, it, yeah. uh, but that's that's just probably because it hasn't seen enough APL code there's, in the there's real world. There's not a lot of APL literal ch- literature out there. Yeah, yeah. But I was also thinking, okay, let's say that you can solve that problem. Then going back to the the criticism of APL that it's a write only language. The reason why people say this is because when you when you read it, it's really hard to parse. So if you are inheriting some code that somebody else wrote, it's just mm-hmm. easier to obliterate whatever they wrote and rewrite that function than to try to debug it and get into their mindset of how they were solving that problem. And I wonder if you could solve that by actually just getting LLM generated explanations of what the APL code is so that mm-hmm. you can quickly get a sense of, okay, this is, I get what's going on here and I will, I will edit it in such and such way rather than having to sit there and try to figure out what's going on. That's an interesting take. Uh, I think my thought on that, well, I guess we can compare and contrast here. Like I, I was thinking yeah. of the APL code almost like a, extendable rod kind of like a shower curtain a segmented shower curtain or maybe segmented Mm -hmm. nunchuck right it's one of those things where it's like a pole but like you pull it apart and it's like connected by a chain and it turns into like a multi-segmented nunchuck i was thinking Uh of like a line of apl like that and then so if there was like some intermediate value that you wanted to inspect you can kind of pull apart that segment and then maybe i don't know that segment that would reveal the intermediate data at that point. And so you can kind of mm. explore that without having to like cut and paste the beginning part of it and then put it in the REPL to see what it does. And and then I guess if I were to like tack on your thing in addition, like just explain to me like what it's doing here, right? And so, yeah. I, but uh, like I was thinking about it as, oh, maybe people only talk about APL as a write-only language because we have bad tools for it. Like, I think one of the things that people in the tools for thought, or maybe like Brett Victor laments about interact our computers as an interactive medium is that we've mostly copied dead paper. Like we think about it as paper. And one of the only ways that we broke out of imitating paper so far is that we now have infinite scroll like we're like oh we can scroll infinitely like we're not constrained by the limitations of paper guess what it's infinite scroll but i i think that's like like a minimum bar right and so brett victor's take was that oh okay like text can be interactive it could be an interactive medium in which you visualize um, the things that you're talking about. But the thing is, like, the visualizations that he had while interactive were still very labor-intensive to produce. And so one step further is that if you have APL code that's a one-liner but seems really terse and dense, I was thinking that you could, like, insert a probe somewhere in there and then it'll pull it apart and you'll show the intermediate thing. But in addition, from your perspective, you can just say, have it explain this part to me or explain it step by step, right? And so what I'm saying overall is that like maybe this is what interactive text is like, 
Like you can have really dense and terse things, but you can have the computer explain it to you. It doesn't have to be right only, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I oh there was a recent thing that was floating around the Twitter recently was like the like it's an old blog post about a color coded explanation of the Fourier transform, and so it color coded the math for it. Uh, hmm. So this is one thing that's been making rounds, but like most people find math notation to be dense. And so they're like, Oh, math is too hard. But in actuality, it's just saying a lot in a really terse way. And it's a little bit more exact than describing everything in English. Because like, if you've ever tried to look at math done before the appropriate note, modern notation, like it's way harder to read a description of it only. And so like, imagine if you had like APL notation, like like the Fourier transform that we're seeing here in math notation, and you're just saying, hey, just explain parts to me here. Like here you can see the combination of the exactness of the terse notation. Like you're you get like how all the different parts are put together. And with the description of the Fourier transform, which is to find the energy at a particular frequency, spin your signal around a circle at that frequency, and then average a bunch of points along that path. You're like, oh, okay. Like, I kind of get what it's doing, right? And then Mm -hmm. the devil's in the details in the notation. And so I think with interactive text, you could probably do something like that. And then APL and math can no, no longer have to be write only languages like they can also mm-hmm. be read only with the help of actual good reading tools which are our interactive medium right like we're yeah. still imitating like dead paper with infants and scroll now but like that's just such a low bar yeah i i, I really like this because uh, if you look at the graphic it's color-coded such that each uh each part of the natural language explanation maps very clearly to the mathematics the color notation. coded yeah which is also color coded with the same which color, is also yeah. Co- yeah exactly and so you can imagine kind of the combination of our two ideas about how to make uh, apl more editable which mm-hmm. is that you have the apl uh, line of code and you could do the same thing right you could get the llm let's say or maybe it could right. be a human written comment, but nobody writes. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to write a comment, to be honest, right? So it's going to have to be <laughs> LLM generated. But, but the LLM could generate this kind of code, and you can you can imagine hovering over a part of the explanation, and it highlights mm-hmm. the part of the code that is doing that thing, and yeah. then you can even uh, incorporate your idea, which is that you could click that part of the code and you can see the data coming in and the data coming out. So you get a sense of what it's doing to the real data, right? And that gives you the entire entirety of what you need to know. Yeah. And even more crazy, like let's say you deploy that and just see the live data streaming through and then you can Mm. either pause it or like run it backwards. Is that too much power? <laughs> I don't know. But then maybe that puts a lot of observability companies uh, out of business. Maybe not quite. Maybe in 20, 30 years or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe this would be regulated to a niche thing. And like everything, the solution to that popularity contest is that somebody needs to build a billion-dollar business on APL. 
And yeah. Well, maybe they already have. I mean, like K is already in production. Maybe they just haven't told anybody about it. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if like K makes people a billion dollars. Well, my my new thesis to go along with somebody needs to build a billion dollar company for to take off is that somebody like Dan Abramov, the creator of React, needs to take this concept and port it JavaScript, JavaScript yeah. and not tell anybody what he's doing <laughs> and just and and sort of like trick everyone into thinking that this is a, a cool new JavaScript library when in fact yeah. it's just like some old idea that uh, functional programmers or uh, other computer scientists have been using for years. You know, it, it, the strange thing about computer science is that like in science fiction, Usually, like, you would get a time machine, go into the future, and steal future technology to use today. But <laughs> right. in actuality, what you can do is you travel to the past, <laughs> dig up some, like, old technology that people fail to take notice of or, like, only a small handful of, and then bring it to the present <laughs> and just port it yeah. to JavaScript <laughs> and, and, you know, make your fortune off of that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I, I think it, it it is interesting. It's intriguing. And also uh, to go back to Iverson's principles for APL, we didn't really touch on this, but one aspect toward the end is that he mentions APL's amenability to formal proofs in mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah so, so I think that that is potentially a good thing for instrumenting uh, and explaining uh, the code as well as maybe even it gives you things like time travel debugging and all these things because it didn't seem like there was a lot of mutability in APL. It seemed like everything was... Uh, it looked like everything was functional, yeah. Was functional and, 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 and so maybe that allows you to, like you said, scrub through... Uh, scrub through the history and see how data is flowing through it. It gives you a lot of observability advantage, basically. Mm. Yeah, I, I think we'll, uh, to expand on the amenability, I, I didn't want to uh, dive into it too much in the beginning of podcasts, otherwise we'd be talking about this stuff forever. But um, like, I think one of the things about APL code is that since it's functional, um, you can find equivalent expressions, Right. And so due to any like uh, laws like associativity and commutivity, you can manipulate it like math. And so as a result, you have like a sequence of APL, um, uh, sequence of APL pro- single liners that when you chain it together, it becomes a proof because they're all equivalent, right? And so you can find equivalent programs, like one-liners, equivalent one-liners, basically. And so that would be a way to do proofs. Hmm. So I think at the end of the day, languages like Julia, R, and MATLAB are probably better workhorses for the type of workload that APL or J would be used for. But, you know, that... That said, I think there's different ways to expand 
APL if you want to go in this direction. And we talked about a whole bunch of things that I guess I wouldn't have thought of myself just looking at APL, but in discussion here, like we talked about, you know, uh, its relationship to interactive text as a possible language for that's good for LLMs to generate as a way for mobile programming to work and um, like for data pipelines uh, for that matter. And, and in addition, I think if you're going to do programming language design, you should probably take a look at it also because APL shows us we really don't know what programming is. And, uh, and even if you aren't going to do programming language design, I think it changes the way that you think about programming and, and the way that you'll approach problems there. And, um, once you know that you will tend to spot opportunities for something that is array like and you'll find the so-called right tool for the job so and uh, there are opportunities to expand products that you might use in different ways uh, because I, I don't think i would have thought about apl as possible extensions to spreadsheets were i not to like look at it at all so I don't know with that i i with the ecosystem apl i'm not so sure but i think the the takeaway from apl and the core concepts that it tries to communicate i i'm pretty optimistic about that and i think it should be in the vernacular and understanding of modern programmers and it's really a pity that it's not actually so i'm pretty optimistic about about the concepts that uh, apl tries to bring to the table itself what about you yeah, very much the same. I think that every time we do one of these retro episodes, I think we try to strive for distilling what was the core concept or spirit of these things, less so the implementation, right? Yeah. And and I think that APL is one of those things where it has this oh, filter yeah, yeah. that on its face, on its surface, it looks absurd and people get hyper fixated on yeah. just the surface level stuff. Yeah. And and I think that our, our my hope is that we've managed to capture more of its essence. And at, at least for me, now having seen it in that light, I, yeah, I, I see a lot of of potential to to carry on its spirit and make spiritual successors to APL if not actually using APL in your daily life. Yeah, yeah. 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 So with that, I mean I my optimism is through the roof. Though we didn't talk about aliens <laughs> this time. Like let's <laughs> yes. just, I, I would say like uh my my optimism is to the stars. What about you? Yes. Yep. Okay, so with that, our optimism and enthusiasm is out of this world. So if this episode opened your eyes, check out our other episodes where we talk about the other edges of technology and why they're interesting and what futures they point to. Check them out and subscribe. And be sure to check out our audio versions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and write us a review to help bring other Technionistas on board. With that, this is Will. And this is Shree signing off. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.